The talk tonight is called, It's Your Call. In other words, it's your decision. That's what it's called. And there's a real trick in here. I mean a trick. There's a real key in here uh, that we need to address, that I need to share with you. Because without this key, sometimes we can go a long time being Christians, almost being Christians, never really being Christians, and never coming to the point where our experience is what it should be. So I have you turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. I want to be very, very practical. I've been sharing what I believe to be true for the last four weekends, and I'm grateful for you all coming. And I have a question for you. Would a Baptist minister, would a Baptist person agree with everything I've shared over the last four weeks? What's the answer to that? No. Would a Presbyterian agree with everything I've shared in the last four weeks? What about a Jehovah Witness? What about a Mormon? What about a Catholic? What about a Lutheran? What about a Methodist? What about a Jew? What about a Buddhist? What about a a Hindu? What about a Muslim? Well, no. The answer is they couldn't possibly agree to everything that I've said in the last four weeks. None of them. Well, another question for you. Do you think that all I said was infallibly true? Oh, you're being quiet on this one. Do you think that all that I've said in the last four weeks is infallibly true? No. (laughs) It can't possibly be infallibly true. I mean, how many people do you know in this world are actually infallible? How many, how many things that you know so well that uh, you can't possibly make a mistake in the thing that you know so well? Now, some people act that way. By the way, I've met people who are so sure of themselves that they can't possibly be right on, on a certain point. Well, I'll tell you what. We're all in for some surprises. You know that by the time... As a matter of fact, there's a verse, and it's, it's not in here, so I've got to bring it up. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, that says we know nothing as we ought to know it. Do you know that it says that there? How many things do we know as we ought to know it? Well, there's not a thing in the world that we know as we ought to know it. So don't go around thinking that you're so smart that there's actually one thing in the world that you are infallible on. It doesn't work. It isn't so. Because we're so damaged by sin. We're so ignorant by nature. We're so weak. We're so fallible. Is that a word? I hope it is. (laughs) That it's not possible to be right all the time. I've got a quotation here. From my favorite author. I haven't used her writings at all. All the time that we've been speaking. But when I got to this point And when I got to this thought. I had this quotation in mind. And let me just read it to you. As the people. Now watch. This is the, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And she says as the people. What people do you think she's talking about? She's talking about us. Talking about Seventh-day Adventists. Okay. As the people. We are certainly in great danger of considering in considering our ideas, because long cherished, to be Bible doctrine and on every point infallible, and measuring everyone by the rule of our interpretation of the Bible. Now watch. This is our danger. This would be the greatest evil that could ever come to us as a people. Whoa! What could be the greatest evil that could ever come to us as a people? Thinking that our ideas, because long cherished, Thinking that our ideas are what? Infallible. Are ideas infallible? No way! Because we're human beings. We're damaged human beings. And we can all stand to learn something from somebody else all the time. Isn't that true? Is it possible? Yeah, yeah. So now, 
How do we protect ourselves from ourselves? Oh boy. Yeah. How can we ascertain when something is really true? How can we ascertain truth from error? Is that important? Well, it is important, of course. And the Lord wants us to ascertain truth from error. Now, I had you turn to Acts chapter 17. Those of you who are preachers in here would know where, exactly where I'm going already. In any case, Paul was in Thessalonica and he had a hard time there because there were Jews, Jews that were very envious of him when he was speaking about the gospel. And so they, they came on the attack against Paul. Well, the people in Thessalonica rushed him out of there and sent him to Berea. And we're going to verse 10. This is Acts chapter 17. We're looking at verse 10. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither, or at least coming to Berea, went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now watch. These, that is the Bereans, were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Wow, notice how the Bereans related to life. It's an amazing. There's a real key in this thing as, as we can see here. Okay? What did they do? They did not reject what other people were telling them. I have a tendency. I, you know, you have to admit, I guess, I have a tendency to have my own opinions, to have my own ideas, and when somebody else comes to me with an opinion that is different from the opinion that I have, my tendency is to say, no, can't be true because that's not what I believe. Well, friends, that's not the approach that we need to take in life. As a matter of fact, the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica because when they heard something, the first thing they didn't do was reject it. They actually, it says there that they received it. How did they receive it? They received the word with readiness of mind. They were ready to receive it. They were willing to receive it. Ah, but they were not naive. And so they went home with that which they had received and they searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were actually true. The word of God was their standard. They measured everything by that instead of measuring everything by their opinion. Instead of measuring, measuring everything by their creed. Instead of measuring everything by what they had been taught and what they had understood and what they learned or what they had been educated to believe. You understand they had a different measure. And friends, what a blessing it would be if everyone in the world were in that nobility. More noble than those in Thessalonica were the Bereans. Yeah. Can you see how, how beautiful this is? These people were believers by nature. <laughs> they were. They were not skeptic by nature. You know, and, and, I, and I, almost, I don't know if I should even say this, but if you go to France... French people in France are skeptic by nature. They question absolutely everything. And I think the French Revolution actually inbred that into those that, you know, they killed off so many people that all that was left was the skeptic. <laughs> no, I, I kind of think that that way. It was that way. And then 200 years later, still haven't, they still haven't overcome this thing. And so if you go to France, you will find out that they question everything, question everything. Well, that's not how God says we ought to approach life. God is looking for believers. Have you ever heard that we were called believers before we were called Christians? Yeah, these are people who have with readiness of mind, they receive what God has to give. And, and sometimes the devil has plenty to give. Ah, they received that too. But they went to the scriptures. And they searched it out to see whether the thing was true or not. Okay. 
We've got to study. Well, we've got to pray for ourselves. We've got to study for ourselves. And we've got to make decisions for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be deceived. Now, I told you that I would tell you my personal experience as fast as I can because I'm so sorry we got started late. Anyway, I'm going to talk fast, okay? Yeah. In my early 20s, I began to feel a spiritual pulling. I don't know why. I don't know why. Except that the Bible says, Jesus said himself, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. So he was drawing. That's what he was doing. He was drawing me to himself. I didn't understand it. I had been a Roman Catholic all my life. I have nothing against Roman Catholics, of course. And that's how I grew up. And I went to church every Sunday and I gave a dollar every Sunday. And I was a good Catholic. No doubt about it. At least I was considered to be. Yeah. But there began to be a pull in my heart for the Word of God. I, I, I had never held the Bible in my hands. I wanted to read this book for some reason, you know, because I'd never, I was curious, I guess is the right word. And so what happened was I knew my brother-in-law read the Bible. And every year, see, uh, my wife was a farmer, farmer's daughter. They had six kids and the farm was central to everything. And so all of us kids were all married and living around the area, and we all had cattle on the ranch, okay, on the farm. And so every year it was my brother-in-law and my job to slaughter the cattle. For everyone, we would put a calf in everyone's freezer, and we would put a pig in everyone's freezer, or whatever else there was. That was my job. And my my brother-in-law, that's what we would do. And I knew that he read the Bible, so every fall we would take three weekends to slaughter all the, the calves that we needed, usually six or seven, And then they would go to the butcher and whatever. Um, But I would spend these three, these weekends, these three weekends with him, Saturday and Sunday. We would do that work all day long, those two days. And I would ask him questions about the Bible, specifically about the end of the world. This is a Catholic terminology, you understand. You don't talk about the second coming of Christ. You talk about the end of the world. And they have their own scenarios. And they're pretty pretty bad. (laughs) Yeah, not really. (laughs) Anyway, I, um, at the end of the three weekends, I would, I would promise myself that I would read the Bible someday. But the problem was, of course, I was working all day long in the mines, and then I would come home at night and I would lift weights for two and a half hours every day, every day. My wife was really unhappy about that. But anyways, that's how it was. That's what I did. And I just never had time to read the Bible. I never did. The next year, we would slaughter, do the same scenario again. I would get all interested again. And then, of course, I promised myself I would, but I didn't. And the next year was again the same story, you know. Finally, the Lord had to take this thing in hand and He says, Okay, I'm going to fix this thing. One night, I come home from work. I came home early. I don't know why. I came up from underground at 11.30 instead of... For somehow, I was half an hour, an hour earlier than all the others. I don't remember why I did that. In any case, took a shower, got ready, jumped in my car, and drove out. And on my way home, I had a head-on collision with the drunk person that I, that I told you about. And he was killed. And I was hurt a little bit. But I was hurt in the legs to the point where I couldn't lift weights for a while. So I just, I, and I knew right away, I just knew right away, this is it. This is the signal, read your Bible. <laughs> and so from that time on, I began to read the Bible. And I was going to read it just like any other book and then make a decision at the end to see whether it was really, to, to decide whether it was really what it claimed to be. Well, I, it didn't go that way. Within two weeks, I was convicted. I was convinced. This was God's Word. And I got on my knees one day and... 
I prayed a prayer. Now, I prayed more than one prayer, and I might, you know, I've already told you some stories about this, but this specific part of the prayer was just this. God, I am not going to the priest to get him to tell me what the Bible means. I'm not going to a Jehovah Witness. I am not going to a Baptist. I'm not going to anybody. I'm going to read the Bible. Nobody's going to know I'm reading the Bible. I cannot trust these people. They're all going to tell me they have the truth and they're all going to try to convince me that what they believe is what's right and I don't know right from wrong and I have no way to determine who's right and who's wrong. Therefore, I'm going to read the Bible and I promise you, anything you teach me, I will do. That was my approach to to life. Now, what do you think? Is that okay? Listen, God is willing to teach every individual individually. And if everyone in the world did that, God would teach them individually and He would lead them all to the one place. Do you know that in John chapter 10 it says, there are many, there are many, many sheep I have, but in the end there will be one fold, one shepherd. How is He going to do that if everyone doesn't finally come to their senses and say, there's too much confusion in this world. And we don't know right from wrong. And you apply to God personally. He will guide you. He will. I um, Do you know the first thing that he actually led me to see and understand? The Sabbath. Isn't that amazing? Right from there. I actually got it from a track. I, the Worldwide Church of God had these magazines and I read it in there. And so I began searching the Bible. And... I couldn't find I couldn't find anything different. The Sabbath was the Sabbath. It's the seventh day Sabbath. That's what it is. That's what it is in the Bible. There is no scripture reference or anything else. And I knew that it was so. But boy, let me tell you what. You want to cause yourself some problems. Yeah, you begin to believe in the Sabbath day. And I, uh, you know, my wife hadn't come with me. At the beginning, she kept saying, be careful, be careful. You don't know where this is going to lead. Be careful. And, you know, my wife is very strong. And I was thinking, boy, oh boy. We're going to have a collision one of these days if, some, if I happen to be going in a direction she doesn't want to go. Well, here it comes. It's the Sabbath. One day I come home from work and I'm sitting at the table and I've got my head in my hands and she's preparing supper in the kitchen there. And uh, she looks at me and she says, what's wrong with you? I said, oh, here it comes. <laughs> I said, um, I've been reading the Bible and the Bible says that the day of worship is on Saturday, not on Sunday. And I don't know what to do. And she turned around and she said, if that's what the Bible says, that's what you should do. Just like that. (laughs) And do you know, from that day forward, my wife came along. She came along and we began worshiping together on Sabbath. Now, we didn't know how to worship on Sabbath. We didn't know anything. It's just that we quit working. We quit doing work on Sabbath and we quit going to a Sunday keeping church and we were keeping the Sabbath. We didn't really know what we were doing. Well, anyway, I went to the mines, and I, I went to the personnel manager, and I said, uh, we've got a problem. I said, I've been reading the Bible, and, and from Friday night sundown to, Friday, to Saturday night sundown, this is God's Sabbath, and I'll be keeping the Sabbath from here on out. And he looked at me and said, we don't have a problem, you have a problem. <laughs> well, I didn't go there to ask his permission. I, to, I went there to tell him what I was going to do. And he could do whatever he wants. So he said to me, he says, do you think, I mean, there's 15,000 employees. You think we're going to change everything just for you? I don't know. I'm just telling you what I'm going to do. Okay? And he said, okay, go to work. 
And when you come up tonight, go in to see the general manager and he will tell you what we have decided. So I went to work and you can imagine how much I prayed that day, right? During the day. I came up at night, it's dark, it's midnight. I go into the general manager's office, it's pretty dark in there. I can see him, he's sitting at the, at the head of a long conference table and he heard me come in and he flicked his hat back, his helmet back and he looked at me and shook his head. He says, I don't know what happened. He said, we went to the headquarters, which was Coppercliff. We went to Coppercliff. We talked to them about your situation. And they told us to give you whatever you want. Do you realize you're the only one in 15,000 that can come in and go out as you please? <laughs> then he said, don't spread it. <laughs> well, how do you don't spread it? I mean, every Friday afternoon you're going home early because the sun is going to set and everyone's watching you go away and they say, where are you going? You know, the work's not done. And you have to explain why you're going where you're going. You understand? <laughs> and so that's how it is. Anyway, yeah. Does the Lord lead? Yeah. He does. The next thing that I discovered was a correct understanding of the state of the dead. Now, I got that just straight out of the Bible. I didn't know anything. I was just reading the Bible and I began to understand the correct understanding of the state of the dead. And I was telling my brother-in-law about it, and he said, hey, I'll send for a book from Rex Humbard. I don't know if any of you remember Rex Humbard. He was a televangelist way back when. Anyways, he sent him a book, and it was full of Bible, all Bible quotations all the way through, explaining the state of the dead. And my brother-in-law gave me the book. I read the whole book, and I said, this book is not right. Now, how in the world did I know that book was not right? I can't tell you how I knew. I didn't know anything. I mean, I was totally uneducated. I didn't know the Bible. I didn't know anything. And yet, when I had finished that book, I knew that it did not harmonize with the Bible. It's amazing what God can do with people as unintelligent, uneducated as I am. Still and all, I could tell the thing was not right. Yeah. The next thing the Lord revealed to me was tithing. And that was very interesting. I was reading in Malachi that, that we could try him, prove him, prove me, he says, if I don't open up the windows of heaven and give you more than you can handle. And so I thought, wow, this is great. You know, I'm believing the Bible. God is making me a promise. If I will pay tithe, he's going to give me more than I can handle. I can use that. That would be fun. <laughs> and so I began to pay tithe, but I didn't know how to pay tithe. I didn't have a church. I didn't belong to anyone. And so my wife and I would pack up the kids well, on Sabbath, you know, that's what, that was our Sabbath activity, because we didn't have a church, you understand. We'd pack up the kids and we'd drive to the city and we would look for people where we could give 10% of our wages to, to, to people who are really poor, you know. That was all we understood and that's what we did. Yeah, one day we're driving around the city, driving and driving and driving, can't find anyone. Finally, we're going to drive out of the city. And as we're driving out of the city, there's a 7 it's really... In Canada, they're called confectionaries. So we stopped the car. I went in there. Now, you can imagine. I don't know how to keep the Sabbath, so I'm going in the store to buy stuff. But anyway, that's how it was. We went into the store, and I'm standing behind an old, old man. And he's, he's talking in French, and he's pointing to some cookies. And he said, you know, I don't have any money right now. Uh, but he says, I'm looking for bottles. Because, you, you know, collect bottles and turn them in. I'm looking for bottles, and if I find enough, I'll come back and buy these cookies. Otherwise, keep me some cookies, for, because I'll get a pension check in two weeks. Would you keep me some cookies? Then he gave her one penny, because that's all he had for a penny match, you know. And then he left. I bought a hand of bananas, left, went, jumped in the car, we're driving away, eating bananas, and all of a sudden it's like, 
What's the matter with you, doughhead? I mean, this old man is right there. He's got one penny to his name, and you don't even recognize, you don't even recognize poverty when you see it. And so we turned the car around, drove back into the city, and I'm looking for him. And there he was. He was on the side. He was going into all the little lanes, whatever. He was looking for bottles. That's what he was doing. So I drove past him. I drove to a corner where there was a garbage can, stopped the car, kept on eating a banana where I had a garbage can to throw it in, and was waiting for him. And when he came so that we were face to face, I pulled out $18 because that's what I had for tithe. That was 10%. I pulled out $18 and I said, the Lord, God wants me to give this to you. And he's like... (laughs) And you know what he did? He split it in half. He said, you take nine and I'll take nine. <laughs> that told me he wasn't a wino because a wino would have taken the whole thing and run like that. You know? No. He, he was, hey, he was just an honest old man who was poor. And so I said, no, no. I said, God wants you to have this. I said, do you believe in God? Oh, he says, I'm going to Mass tonight. <laughs> I said, no, that's not what I had in mind. But anyway, <laughs> that'll be fine. <laughs> And so that's, that's how I was paying tithe. And do you know that my, my wages went up and up and up and up and de- doubled? Came to the place where I was making $100 a day. Every day making $100 a day. That's 40 years ago. That was money 40 years ago. It's, uh, I w- wouldn't mind making that today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really. One Sunday, I'm sitting at home, and it's a Sunday, so I decide I'm going to turn the television on and watch some kind of television evangelist, television religious programming, because I don't have a church, you understand, and I'm interested in everything religious by now, okay? So I I turn the television on, I sit on the couch, and a man comes on, his name is George Vandeman, and I didn't like George Vandeman. I had, you know, list, I had watched different programming, and I didn't like him because he was too syrupy. He was too effeminate as far as I was concerned. And so when I saw George Vanderman come on, I thought, oh, not him. And so I got up and I was walking towards the television, and he said, we have a modern day prophet. And I said, what did you say? <laughs> a modern day prophet. You know, one of the reasons I began reading the Bible was I wanted to help from God to make decisions so that I wouldn't make a mess of my life. You know, I came from a very, very big family and more than one ended up in, 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 in the gutter, you know, and, and skids row, I guess is what you'd call it. And I thought, you know, what's going to happen? I have a family, I have a home, I have a job, I have, you know, all of this stuff and everything could go south anytime I could fail at all of these things, and I don't want to, and I wanted help from God. And then when a man comes along and says, we have a modern-day prophet who deals with modern-day issues, I thought, well, how good would that be if that were true? And so I listened to him. And do you know, strange as it might be, I believed every word of it. I believed every word of it. And so at the end of the program, I sent for a little book that was called Steps to Christ. I couldn't wait to get this book from a modern-day prophet. This was going to be so wonderful. Well, let me tell you something. It took three months, Pastor. It took three months for the pastor to send me that crazy book. I was in the Adventist church before I got it. No, I found my way there before I even got that book. It took them so long to respond to my inquiry, my desire to get that, that thing. 
Yeah. Well, the next thing that happened, and this will be the last story, we're really going to get on to this. The next thing that happened was after so many months of worshipping by ourselves, we began to feel like, no, there's got to be, there's gotta, God's got to have a family. God's got to have a people, a church, right? And so uh, my prayer began to be, Lord, I want to worship. I want to worship with a family. I want to have a church family. Somehow I can't. This is lonely. This is terrible. Besides, we'd lost all our family and all our friends. We had lost all our friends because we weren't drinking anymore and we weren't dancing anymore and we weren't doing anything like that anymore. And so we were getting lonely. But I, I knew one thing. It had to be a church that kept Sabbath. I knew for sure, I thought, I thought anyway, that it wouldn't be Jewish, you know, because I felt like that was rejected sometime sometime past. Now, who would it be? The only ones I knew that kept the Sabbath were the Worldwide Church of God. And what I didn't know is that they don't have churches. They always rent halls. I didn't know that. So I, I knew they were in the Minnow Lake area, so I would go there looking for this church weekend after weekend, and I never could. I knocked on every door, every presbytery, every church door, everyone that I could find looking. Nobody knew where they were. Nobody knew where they were. And so finally I thought, oh, I know... You know, they're listed in the Sudbury Star every Saturday edition. So, I'll just get a Sudbury Star and, and I'll find them. The Sudbury Star went on strike that week. Yeah. Well, that's nothing. All I do is find a back edition of the Sudbury Star. I mean, people collect newspapers, especially in the north. If they have wood stoves, you know, you need newspapers. But do you know that I could not find a back edition of the Sudbury No way, it did not exist. When God hides something, they just don't exist. You can't find them. Well, in the meantime, my brother-in-law comes to me and he says, I've heard of a Seventh-day Adventist church. They keep Sabbath. And I said, really? But I don't like that name. (laughs) And so I refused to go. Well, after a few weeks of this, I began thinking, well, what have I got to lose? I mean, you know, we're not going to church anywhere. Why don't we do this? And so we... We, on a Saturday morning, get all our kids dressed up and all the rest, and we go on to church, but we went to church at the wrong time, because I had been reading about the Worldwide Church of God. They met at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and so I thought, you know, maybe it's going to be the same, and then we ended up, it was all over. Now, this was very providential. If we had gone there at the right time, we never would have returned. We never would have returned. But God knew, and so we got all confused, and we went at the wrong time. We saw the billboard at what time they met, and then the next weekend on Saturday, we were there on time. We went in through the door, we sat down, and the Sabbath school superintendent was an old lady in her 60s, bent over double. She had some kind of something, and she was bent over double, and she was the speaker, and she was as boring as she was old and bent over. And so it was not good. And I sold, I said to my wife, listen, as soon as she's done, we're out of here. This is boring. If that's the minister, this is terrible. You know? Because, you know, you come from the Catholic Church. The, the priest did everything, you know, up front. And so I didn't have any idea. And so here she is. She's the Sabbath school superintendent. I don't know what that is. And she's really boring. So we're, we're going to leave. So we waded through. We actually waded through the Sabbath school lesson. And all they did was argue about stuff. It was one of the most argumentative church I've ever attended in my life. They used to argue like mad. And that wasn't so attractive, you know. Um, and so as soon as the Sabbath school lesson was over, I said to my wife, okay, up, we're out of here. And we got up and we're walking toward the door. And as we get to the door, the door opens 
and two black gentlemen, one from Trinidad and one from Jamaica, dressed in black suits and white shirts, and they're just like... And I said to my wife, uh-huh, the action is about to start. Let's <laughs> wait this one through. Now, if you've ever heard someone from Trinidad or Jamaica preach, you know that the preaching is alive, right? I've never heard preaching like that in my life. And do you know that I have never left the Adventist church since? Amen. If we had gone there one week earlier, it would have been toast. Right there, we never would have returned. What we didn't know is that these two pastors were from Andrews. They were co-porters. One was actually uh, lay activities leaders for the island of Trinidad, and the other one was in high position, and they were getting extra education at Andrews. They were co-portering in Sudbury for the summer, and so they, were, they had come. This was their very first weekend. Their, we couldn't go before they got there because it would have been nothing. We, we wouldn't have stayed. Well, just a few days earlier on Wednesday, my sister-in-law had gone to the dentist, and she saw these Bible storybooks that Adventists have, and she said, I want to have these books. But there were no more cards. They, they hadn't been serviced in a long time, you see. So she's sitting there wondering, how am I going to get these books? And these two men walked into the dentist's office on, on the Wednesday before we went to church, and they were servicing the cards. She says, you come to my house. I want to buy these books. And so we went to church on Sabbath. On Sunday, they went to her house. When, she, when they drove into her place, uh, she was painting the fence. And she was all apologetic because it was Sunday and she was painting the fence. And she says, well, the reason I'm painting the fence on Sunday is because we are Sabbath keepers. We keep Saturday instead of Sunday. And these two guys went, really? <laughs> is that so? And so she bought all the books and she sent them to my house. Well, we met them the day before. And uh, we ended up buying all the books too. Anyway, do you know what I found? when I came to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I found that this modern-day prophet belonged to this church. That's what I found. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And I went out to the Book and Bible House, and I bought every single book that had her name on it. And I've read them all, too. And I've read some of them many, many times, of course. The other thing that I found, do you know what it was? That everything that God had taught me, that everything that I understood of the Bible was in exact sync with the Seventh-day Adventist Church. God had led me individually, point by point by point by point. And when I got, and when He finally dumped me in the church where He wanted me, every point was there. There was not one thing I had to backtrack on. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Now, does that do anything for your Christian experience? Well, it did something for mine. <laughs> it really, really did. Okay, now, let me share with you the key that I've been wanting to share all along. Have you ever heard the saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions? What does that mean? Uh-huh. It means that there's a lot of people going to wake up in hell, figurative, figuratively, who have always wanted to change course, who just never did change course. Yeah, that's what it means. Okay. So now here's the question. What's missing with our good intentions? What with our good intentions do we need to do? What is it that God has inculcated? What is it that God has put in our beings that can help us to make our good intentions a reality? Do you know what it is? Challenge. Activated. Activated challenge, yes. Choose today. Choose. Oh, the will. Willpower. Anybody here have any willpower? 
Yeah, do you know that you wouldn't be here if you didn't have any willpower? You never could have made the decision to come. Do you know that it's not easy, Saturday night, to just decide I'm going to jump in my car and I'm going to go to Eden Valley when I could sit down on my sofa and eat popcorn and watch TV or whatever it is that you might do? It takes willpower. It takes decision. Are you decisive? Well, listen, you're decisive enough to come here and that's good and I appreciate it. Yeah. But how decisive really are you? The will is the governing power in the nature of man. That's what, we, that's what we know. It's your decision maker. Are you decisive? How decisive are you? Now, you know the desire to do right is good as far as it goes, right? But you've got to have more than a wish and a desire to do something. You've got to put your wish, your will on the side of action and you've got to get up and go. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. This is the story of Elijah. We talked a little bit about Elijah last night. The story of Elijah, uh, he's a Tishbite, whatever that might mean. In any case, he's living at a time when Israel is apostatized. Ahab is a king, he's an Israelite, but his wife is Jezebel, and she is not an Israelite. And she's a Baal worshiper, and she's got huge influence on her husband. He becomes a Baal worshiper, and he's got huge influence on the nation. So the nation becomes Baal worshippers, the whole Gang. Now, how many of you have ever named your daughter Jezebel? <laughs> Not one Jezebel in the house. <laughs> how many of you have named your sons Judas? Not one, I bet you. Yeah. Yeah. So you can see that this lady had a, quite a reputation, even to this day. Still to this point, we don't name the, our girls that. Yeah, she had a lot of pull. And the whole nation had become Baal worshippers. Well, God and Elijah got together and they, they formulated a plan. How are we going to help these people? Supposing now it doesn't rain for three and a half years, do you suppose we'll get their attention? And God and Elijah said, yeah, I think we will, probably. So God says to Elijah, get yourself to Ahab and tell him. Tell him there won't be any dew or rain for three and a half years. So Elijah goes to the palace, gets past security, gets right into Ahab's face and says, no dew, no rain for three and a half years, turns around, marches out, and by the time Ahab gets his senses together, Elijah is gone. For three and a half years he's gone, he can't find him. When God hides something, it's hidden, and he couldn't find him. Well, three and a half years later, the area is parched. I mean, it's parched. People are dying, animals are dying, everything is, is really, really bleak. And God and Elijah get back together and they said, do you think we have their attention now? And yeah, I think so. Okay, so God says to Elijah, go tell Ahab that it's, it's confrontation time. Get him up there on top of Mount Carmel and we're going to have a confrontation. Okay, so Ahab brings all 850 priests and prophets of Baal. He probably brings the military. He probably brings all of his high, high uh, distinguished people a lot of people up there on Mount Carmel. Elijah's all by himself. He'd better not fail in the thing he's about to do because he's hamburger if he does. And so anyway, you know what he said? You know that he put his finger right on the problem? Look at verse 21. We're in 1 Kings chapter 18. We're looking at verse 21. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. And the people answered him, Not a word. Now, why didn't the people have a word to say? Why didn't they answer him anything? What does the text say? They couldn't decide. They were halt between two opinions. They were sitting on the fence and they didn't know which side to get off. They were Israelites. 
by nationality, but they were Baal worshippers by choice. And so here they had a choice to make, and Elijah is bringing them to the point of making a decision, and they can't make a decision, they're indecisive. Isn't that amazing? Do you know that that is the first Elijah in the Bible, right? And he comes at a point when Israel is in a low ebb spiritually. Who is the second Elijah? We covered that last night. John the Baptist. Do you know that he came at a low point in Israel's spirituality also? He came to prepare the way of the Lord. And he did. I guess he did. Now, who's the third Elijah? Well, there'd be a lot of different answers, I think, on that one. We can find the third Elijah in the book of Malachi chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. He says, it says there, he will turn the hearts of the father to the children, the hearts of the children to the father. That's his work. I wonder what his message would be. If you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. I believe this is the Elijah message. However, I have no hard fact to back that up. This is an opinion. Well, I think it's a good one. Just the same. It's a message to the last church of the seven churches of Revelation. When it's the last church, it's the last days. This is the people whom we are. Notice what the message is. Revelation chapter 3 verses verses 15 and 16. Jesus says, the true witness says, I know thy works. Thou art neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Do you know that that Christianity today makes Jesus sick? Do you know that? Yes. Why? Because we're not on fire for the Lord. And we're not ice cold either. We've got one foot in the church and we've got one foot in the world. We don't want to leave the church because we don't want to be lost. But we don't want to leave the world either because we don't want to miss out on all the fun and games and the stuff that's happening there. And so what that what happens is it makes us lukewarm Christians and it's making Jesus sick. Now what's wrong with them? Neither hot or cold. Halt between two opinions. Don't know which side to get off. Can't get themselves to be on fire. Can't get themselves to leave the church either. Have you ever, as pastors, maybe I should ask the pastor... Have you ever visited people who haven't been to church in years and you want to take them off the books and you go to their house and you say, okay, well, you, I guess you're really not interested. We're going to take you off the books. And what do they want? What do they say most of the time? No way. Don't take me off the books. It's like being on the books is salvation. Forget it. That's not salvation. What kind of Christianity is that? Yeah. Well, it runs deep. I told you a story and I'm not going to repeat this story, but I told you a story some nights ago about a mining cave-in that I was in. You remember? In answer to a prayer, I said prayer. In my prayer, I said, Lord, I'm 25 years old. got plenty of time. Plenty of time. And so, don't call on me. I'll call on you. I'll come back. I'm really interested. I want to be saved. I like the Bible and all that. But I have a lot of living to do. And I want to... I want to, Some things I want to do. And God specifically said to me, He said, You will not have another chance. And I argued with him. And I argued with him. What do you mean I won't have another chance? I'm still young. There's plenty of time. And he said, you will not have another chance. Until finally, because I knew that it was God's voice. And I wouldn't have another chance. Because God doesn't lie. I decided to give my heart to the Lord. And I've never turned back. Well, I didn't know why he said that. Except that a few months later, I was involved in this this mining cave-in. And there's no way I would be here today. Had I forfeited God's protection that day. No way. And my partner with me, both of us got out of there and we're both Seventh-day Adventists to this day. Yeah. Philippians 4.13. Do you know what it says? 
I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Do you know that that's not a question? Do you know that that's a statement? The question is not, can I do all things? The Bible says I can. The question is, will you? That's the question. Do you know that you can do all things? Do you believe it? If you believe it, do you act accordingly? Do you put your will in gear and attempt something? It's amazing that we all sit around as Christians, we say we believe that we can do all things through Christ that strengthens us, and then we do nothing. Isn't that amazing? That means we don't believe it, right? Yeah, somebody will say, well, uh, I can quit smoking anytime I want to. Well, yes, a lot of people have quit smoking, so then I guess you can quit smoking anytime you want to. That isn't the question. The question is not, can I quit smoking? The question is, will you? Will you? I, I've always wanted to be a missionary. Really? Why then are you not a missionary? You don't have to go to Africa to be a missionary. If you're not a missionary, something's wrong. You just haven't put your will in gear. You just haven't decided what you're going to be, what you're going to do. And you're not doing it because you are indecisive. Question. If you sin, did the devil make you do it? No. The devil's work is to tempt, and he's really good at it. The devil work, devil's work is to harass and tempt and bother you and give you every reason to rationalize all kinds of stuff the way. But if you sin, whose decision was it? It's your decision. If you do well, it's because God forced you to do well. No, his work is to give you grace and power and to draw you to himself and to give you every encouragement in the book. But if you do well, whose decision is it? It's your decision. Turn with me to Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3. I think we're going to make it. Well, I hope so. Joel chapter 3. I want you to see something. This is in the Minor Prophets. It's not always easy to find. But if you go to Ezekiel, you can go to Daniel and then Hosea Joel. So it's not that far. Joel chapter 3. We're going to the last. By the way, the book of Joel is a book of prophecy. It's all about prophecy. It's all about the end days, by the way. In every chapter, it talks about the last days. And it's about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the last days. The whole book of Job. It's very inspiring if you know what you're reading. We're going to go to verse 14. I'm going to use it as a springboard verse. Okay? Notice what it says. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Pointing to the last days, it's saying that there's coming a time where every individual will have to make a decision. We will be brought to make a decision in the last days. We've just finished studying the mark of the beast and we're studying also America and prophecy. And we can see by these messages that we've been listening to that we're coming to the point where someday everyone will be brought to make a decision. But do you know the problem with that? The problem is some people don't make decisions. Oh, have you ever met people who don't make decisions? Have you ever met one looking in the mirror? Oh, it's not easy for everyone to make a decision, is it? No. As a matter of fact, if there's a crisis in the church, what do you do? Do you make a decision or do you go to the pastor and say, Pastor, what are you going to do? If he says, I'm going left, you go left. Because that's what he said, he's going left. If he says right, you go right because he says he's going right. That's no way to make a decision. Friends, listen. God wants you to read the Bible for yourself. God wants you to communicate with Him. Ask Him to guide you. Believe what He's teaching you. And make a decision to go with Him in spite of the fact that your friends and your family and whoever else is going to be against the fact that you're making this decision. This is what God wants from us. And it's going to be dangerous in that day when people are coming with machine guns and lining your kids up against the wall and saying, we want you to worship the beast. Or we'll kill your children. 
Now, what are you going to do? Well, I tell you what, if you never made a decision by yourself, you're going to have a hard time making a decision that day if you're not decisive. Three quotations in my, in my uh, margin. Without decision, an individual is fickle, unstable as water, and can never be truly successful. Would you like to be successful? Well, we all want to be successful. And it says here, be decisive. Make decisions. Oh, but I don't want to make a mistake. Some people are super afraid of making mistakes. Well, do you know there's nothing wrong with making mistakes? Do you think God hates you if you make a mistake? No, no. Have you ever been to school? How many of you have been to school? Well, just checking. Yeah. Have you ever been to grade one and two and three? Did you learn math in school? What does the teacher use to teach math? Do you know? Huh? Problems. problems. That's right. That's what. The, can you imagine there are people who go home at night and think of problems for you? Well, that's what a math teacher is supposed to do. And they come up with problems for you. Why? Because that's the only way you can learn math. If there was no math problem, you'd never learn math. Well, now tell me, today, does it matter very much? Well, let me ask you this. Did you get all your math problems right in grades 1, 2, and 3? Did you? No? How much does it matter today that you got some of them wrong? Well, it doesn't matter a hoot. Do you know how to add, subtract, divide, multiply? Yes, if you know the formula, the problems that you made mistakes on were just used to teach, a, to teach us to teach you how to do math. And that's how God relates to life. Do you know that He wants us to live life successfully? And the only way He can teach us to live life successfully is to give us life Problems. All kinds of problems. Praise the Lord for problems. Job chapter 14 verse 1 says, Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble, full of problems. Is that true? That's a promise. Yes, from the day you are born till the day you die, you will have trouble. And what's the trouble for? Well, friends, it's to teach us to live correctly. Little by little, by all these problems, we learn how to do better and better and better. And God is preparing us for the kingdom of heaven. Second quotation. Indecision soon becomes decision in the wrong direction. Isn't that a beautiful quotation? Indecision soon becomes decision in the wrong direction. God would rather that you make a mistake than that you don't make a decision. Why? Because if you don't make a decision, you're not exercising your decisiveness. You're not exercising your will. If you don't exercise your will, it will atrophy. And you won't be able to use it when you need it. You've got to be able to make decisions. Don't let other people make your decisions for you. I don't know how to emphasize it more. Last quotation. Long delays tire the angels. It is even more excusable to make a wrong decision sometimes than to be continually in a wavering decision, in a wavering position, I think it says. Yeah. Be decisive. Make decisions. Make mistakes. It's okay. You'll learn by the mistakes. Don't go making mistakes on purpose. <laughs> God doesn't <coughs> appreciate that. <laughs> no, no. Don't go making mistakes on purpose. Do the best you can all the time with what you've got. You will make mistakes and you will learn from the mistakes and God will guide you. But one thing you need to learn tonight, you need to be decisive. Make decisions. Don't let other people make your decisions. Weigh things for yourself. Pray with God. Ask Him to guide you. And then do the best that you can with what He's given you. But there are people who are pure followers. 
They will only do what other people... They have a kind of a group mentality. If the group goes that way, they just kind of go that way. If the group goes that way, they just kind of go that way. They don't make their own decisions. There was an experiment... There was an experiment done by a teacher. She had nine students. And uh, at one point, one of the students had stepped out of the class and she thought, oh, this is a good time to, make, uh, to do this experiment. One student had gone out of the class. So she said to the other uh, eight students, she says, listen, I'm going to put four li- three lines on the blackboard. A will be a long line, B will be a medium line, and C will be a short line. And when uh, that person comes back in, I'll take my stick and I'll ask you, which is the longest line on the board? And I will pour it to B and I want no one to lift, nobody lift your hand. Nobody lift your hand. Okay? And so that's what happened. The person came back in and uh, she organized this test, three lines on the board, and she pointed to B and nobody lifted their hand. Well, that's fine because it wasn't the longest line. And then she took her stick and she pointed to see the shortest line. And she says, is this the longest line? And she had organized with everyone to everyone lift their hands. And they were all sure right away. Yes, they all lifted their hands. And the person who had come in late, who didn't know what was going on, was like, what in the world is going on? And little by little, her hand kind of went up sheepishly. And she went because every hand was up. Something she didn't understand. But she went with the crowd. Now, would you have done that? Well, I'm glad you can say no. I hope it's true. (laughs) Because there's coming a time when the majority are going to vote for the beast and the mark of the beast. Who are you going to vote for? Well, you won't vote. Well, you will. (laughs) But it will be with your actions. Yeah. Okay, we're almost done. Last question. When is a person strengthened... Is it before we decide or after we decide? After. Do you know, truth being told, that Jesus defeated the enemy at the cross? Did you know that? Do you know that all the power in the universe is available to you, even right now? Did you know that? Yes, it's true. So all the power is there, but do you know that your decision reveals your faith. Do you know that you can't tap into the power until you decide to do God's will? And the power comes with the decision which reveals your faith. When Jesus walked into the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember Mark chapter 14, verse 32, 3, 4? In there it says that he was sore amazed. For the first time in his life, he had taken the sin of the world upon himself and he was crushing the life out of him. He said, even unto death, And so he went into the garden and he pleaded with his father, Father, is there no other way? Is there? There's got to be another way. Father, you can do anything. You can change these circumstances. And he argued with his father. He pleaded with his father. Is there no other way? And his father was having to say, there is no other way. Three times Jesus prayed that prayer. And at the end, he decided that he would sacrifice himself at all costs to himself. He would go into this dark hole. He didn't know anymore whether he could come back or what. And he decided that at any cost to himself, he would do it. Now, was he strengthened to do it? Did it come before he decided or after? Was the angel there before? 
Was the power there before? It was all there and it was all his, but it didn't come to him until he had decided that he would trust his father in the situation. And as soon as he trusted his father to go through, the angel came and strengthened him to do what he needs to do. Well, friends, this is how it works. You know the truth or you know some truth. You may be at the point where you have to make a decision in your life, either this decision or that decision. I don't know what decision you're facing right now, but let me tell you what. You will have no power from God. You can pray to God if you want to pray and ask Him for power, but there will be no power until you make a decision on whose side of the question you're going to settle this. If you settle on the side of God, the power comes. But it only comes after you make the decision. Get that in your heart. Get that in your mind because that's the only way you can reveal faith. And your faith will be revealed by the decision you make. And you're going to, you remember in the Garden of Eden, Eve made a decision, didn't she? She had God on the one side and she had a serpent on the other side and they were contradicting each other and she decided to go with the serpent. What would that say about how she related to God? Well, she didn't trust Him. It was distrust of God. And she put her trust in a serpent. She went with Him. Well, what kind of power? She lost all the power that she had before. And the same thing works with us. Just that way. Now, I've got, I've got to stop all this. That's what i got to do. So I'm just going to go to the end of what I wanted to say here. A thousand decisions we face every day and throughout our lives. Should I accept Christ as my personal Savior? That's a decision we need to make. Shall I follow the Bible for what it says and as it says it? Shall I pay tithe? Should I change my diet? What about what I read and watch? Is there a decision that we need to make on that point? Should I wear jewelry or should I wear tattoos? Should I wear makeup? Uh, which church should I attend? Is there a decision that we need to make there? On which day should I worship? Should I be baptized? Should I not be baptized? Should I wear long hair, short hair, or no hair? I mean, all of these things are decisions that people are making these days. What about the music we listen to these days? What about the clothes we wear? Should we be missionaries? Should we not be missionaries? Listen, I want to give you some advice. Here's the advice. All of these points will come to you one by one. Day by day, however long it takes, whenever God brings them to you, make the decision on the side of God. That's the advice. That's what you want. Every time. Do you know why? Because in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verse 30, it says, Them that honor me, I will honor. You want a life that is happy. You want a life that is productive. You want a life that leads to heaven. You want a life that is congenial. You want a life that is happy. Them that honor me, I will honor. You, when you're asked to make a decision, you won't see that. You're going to have a devil on one shoulder. <laughs> we used to use this kind of illustration, you know. An angel on this shoulder and an angel on that shoulder. A white one and a black one, right? Right. And both speaking in your ears. The Lord's going to encourage you forward and the devil's going to throw everything he can at you. The devil is going to throw everything he can at you as to why you should not go, as to why you should not trust God, as to why you should not do God's will. But let me tell you, it's a lie. It's a lie. I wish that I had time to expose my whole life and what it would have been had I never chosen God. And what it is today because I have. And let me tell you, I would never go back for anything in the world. Now, I don't know what I'm going to do when the mark of the beast comes. I can't be bragging and saying, well, yeah, I'm going to stand through this. I'm going to be standing strong. I sure hope I am. <laughs>
It's whatever God gives me. And it all depends on where I put my faith and my trust and my prayers and my decisions. Do you see it? Lord, help us. What do you say? Yeah. How many of you would like to say, I want to make every decision on the side of truth, on the side of God, and not on the side of the enemy? Has anyone here come to these meetings hoping to go on the side of the enemy? <laughs> Can I see your hand? Yes. God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org